when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Hello, and welcome to the FT's weekly politics podcast with me, Miranda Green. As the Labour leadership race hots up, the government seems to have spent most of its energies trying to direct our attention away from the trade talks with the EU, not entirely successfully. We'll have more on Labour's runners and riders in a moment with Jim Pickard, our political correspondent, and on Dominic Cummings, the man at the heart of the Downing Street operation. But first, I'm joined by George Parker, our political editor, and by Sam Fleming, our man in Brussels, to pick over the tea leaves and predict what these negotiations might bring. So, Sam, it's great to have you in London to tell us what's really going on in Brussels. Clearly, we're watching all the signs from here as to the changing personnel, apart from anything else, as this really important trade negotiation begins to get underway. The signs from Downing Street seem to be very firm, diverge, diverge, diverge. What is the line from Brussels so far? I think Brussels was expecting, at least early in the negotiations, a very tough line from Boris Johnson and his team and a willingness to stress divergence. What the European Union is broadly asking for is if you want to try and do some sort of trade deal within the 11 months or so that we have available before us this year, then it's going to be a fairly minimalist deal, but probably covering goods rather than uh, services, which obviously is a huge part of the UK economy. And they're requiring what is called a level playing field, which we're going to hear an awful lot about over the next few months, which basically says we don't want the UK to be getting a competitive advantage in key areas of regulation over continental European companies, for example, in the areas of environment, labour standards, the state aid regime, restrictions on government's ability to funnel money into prized industries. So they want this level playing field regime. Now, at the same time, the UK is saying, well, hang on a minute, we don't want the most awesome trade deal ever with the European Union. We're willing to accept frictions in our trading relationship we didn't used to have when we were part of the European Union. So why are you being so demanding in terms of this alignment between the two sides on regulation? George, you've had a hyperactive week, but one of the people (laughs) you profiled this week was David Frost, Mm. who's the guy who's being sort of sent in to be hardline on behalf of the UK. Mm. He is that rare thing, a British bureaucrat who actually believes in Brexit. Is this going to give any sort of advantage in this next stage of negotiations, which are really going to be tough to conclude, as Sam has said, in the short time period this year? Well, I think from the point of view of clarity, of the British government's negotiating position, it helps to have someone who actually believes in what he says and for his interlocutors on the other side of the table to know he's a true believer. And as you say, David Frost, or Frosty, as he's known universally inside Number 10, is someone who would say to friends he's been on a long intellectual journey on the EU, but he's never been a believer. He went to Brussels for the first time in 1993 
And a lot of people go to Brussels in the British Foreign Service and come out even more convinced of how great it is. But he came away thinking the opposite, that the EU was a project which was fatally flawed because of the euro and had grandiose visions of being a super state, which didn't really fit with Britain. So he's very unusual in that respect. He certainly shares Boris Johnson's belief that divergence from EU rules will be good in the medium term, both economically and from a sovereignty point of view. There are people who have worked in the Foreign Office for years who think he's not really up to the job. I think that's partly reflected by the fact that they can't understand for a moment why he thinks Brexit is a good idea. But inside number 10, he's respected. And an awful lot of weight is being put on David Frost's shoulders to lead this negotiation. It's one area where Dominic Cummings, the chief advisor in number 10, really won't be heavily involved. David Frost is taking on a lot of responsibility. And what about his main interlocutors in Brussels? Because obviously there have been a lot of personnel changes because it's a new commission. So watching it from London, we're going to have to get used to a different set of personalities. We are to an extent, but Michel Barnier, who was the Brexit negotiator in the previous phase, will remain the lead with an umbrella role over the whole of the Commission's bureaucracy, which will be feeding into these negotiations. He then reports into Ursula von der Leyen, the new Commission president. There are, as you say, new personalities. Phil Hogan, who's the new Trade Commissioner, Ireland's appointment to the Commission, a big personality known as Big Phil, (laughs) but he's a physically large Big Phil and Frosty, good God. He's already proving to be quite an outspoken, strong interlocutor. He will be feeding into this because of his role running this part of the commission which deals with Trey. But under them and around them, a lot of the figures are the same. And actually, the other thing to really point out is that certainly on the EU side, they feel they're pretty well prepped for this. Now, the big task they have is to try and get a coherent view amongst the various member states as to what their priorities are. So that's going to be a complex operation, getting all these views from 27 countries. But once you get past that, they feel that they're very experienced in trade negotiations is what the European Commission does on epic scale around the world, which the UK doesn't have that inbuilt expertise because it's actually delegated it to the European Union during its membership. And they feel that they've done a lot of preparatory work really over months and they've been doing it this January in an intensive format with the member states to get their act together. So George, while I've got you here, I want to ask you about the long piece you've written about Dominic Cummings, the shadowy figure at the centre of the Downing Street operation, being talked about almost as if it's him running the government rather than Boris Johnson. There's been a fascination with Cummings ever since the Brexit referendum. He, of course, ran the successful Leave campaign. He's delivered Boris Johnson this majority of 80 seats, which was not being predicted by most people before the election. How powerful is he and how much of a incredible, sort of unusual brain is he? And how much is it a myth? Well, he is very powerful. He is the most senior advisor inside 10 Downing Street. And he's a fascinating individual. And he's perceived on the outside as some kind of evil genius pulling the strings behind the scenes. But if you look back at his career, he's very unusual as an advisor. And this is where his power derives, I think, in being good at lots of different things. He's good at running campaigns, and we saw that with the EU referendum, of course, and he also ran a referendum campaign to stop English devolution under Tony Blair to the northeast. He's good at running projects like a referendum campaign. He's good at communications. He's good at running focus groups and understanding electoral patterns. And he's good at policy. Uh, One of the things I bring out in this piece is the fact that he has this habit of disappearing into his bunker on his parents' farm in County Durham into an outhouse, which is filled with books. And he will spend months just reading about how you win campaigns, how you do policy. So he's derived a lot of influence. And um, 
inevitably, given the way he behaves and the way he looks and the scruffy demeanour and a great myth has grown up around him. And I think it's important to strip away the myth. What is the extent of his power inside Downing Street now? It's true he advises the Prime Minister across the whole waterfront and sets the overall strategy of the government, including this reaching out to the north, the levelling up agenda you hear so much about. But well, if you said he's actually from that part of the world. He's from the northeast of England. And I think that's one of the things that really drives him. He actually emotionally feels the importance of actually spreading wealth beyond London and the southeast. But it's important to say where the limits of his power are. He's not heavily involved in economic policy. There was an early skirmish with the Treasury, which Boris Johnson ended up siding with the Treasury over him on fiscal discipline. And he's not going to be heavily involved in the detailed Brexit negotiations, which, if you were cynical, you might think that's rather wise from his point of view, that having delivered Brexit, he wants to stand well clear of the detail of having to actually deliver it. I think he's decided inside Downing Street to focus his attention on two main areas. The first one, which is a big area, is trying to turn the Downing Street machine or the civil service machine into something which will actually deliver on the government's priorities. And, you know, we had this famous memo very recently about where he was inviting weirdos and misfits to come and work in number 10. But he wants to have more expertise inside the civil service, more scientists, more data experts, communication experts who can work beyond just talking to people like me in the lobby, but can talk directly to people through the social media. And the other thing he wants to do is to inject science into the heart of government through an agency which is modelled on the US DARPA, sort of an agency where the government promotes really cutting-edge science, where projects fail, some succeed, based on the NASA model or the Manhattan Project. And so that's where he's focusing his attention on civil service reform and getting science into the heart of the government, making Britain a leading player in science. It's a sort of interesting mixture, isn't it, of sort of detailed changes to the machinery of government and wanting to change the way that operates, and then big, long-term, megabucks, ambitious projects like on science. Of course, he'll probably have left the stage by the time we work out whether the latter have been successful or not, right? Because, you know, DERPA, NASA projects, you only find out 20 years later whether that money's actually resulted in important scientific breakthroughs and for economic yeah. benefits. I think the thing about Dominic Cummings is he always gives the impression he's passing through. He's almost sets out to create the idea that this is just a temporary thing. You know, he was the acting director of Vote Leave. When he came to Downing Street, he was given the impression he was going to disappear after a few weeks for an operation on a mystery ailment, but the operation never happens and Dominic Cummings carries on. But I don't think he's there for the long run. You speak to people who say, look, he's not like Talleyrand or Metternich. He's not there sort of with designs on the state for a long time. I think he wants to come in and make a very quick impact. And as you say, we'll find out probably years down the line whether it's actually worked or not. So we turn now to Labour's leadership race, which has been really hotting up. Some of the contenders already getting in a bit of trouble for things that they're saying. Jim Picard, you are watching this race really, really closely. This week, you've profiled for us Lisa Nandy, even though she's not seen as one of the two front runners. What's going on? And is she a true dark horse in this race? So if there's one thing I've learned in recent years, apart from don't predict the results of general (laughs) elections and referendums, it's also don't predict the result of Labour leadership races, because in 2015, like most of the commentariat, I was completely blindsided by the rise of Jeremy Corbyn. And it wasn't until the initial hustings when reports started filtering back to me that this old guy with his left-wing views was going down really, really well with the membership that people started noticing a change. And although, yes, Keir Starmer and Rebecca Long-Bailey are the two front-runners of the five Labour candidates, 
we have to be open to the idea of other things happening. And the reason we've done this profile of Lisa Nandy is because she did a reasonable launch on Monday. She did a pretty good interview with Andrew Neil on the BBC on Wednesday. And several of my sources are saying to me that she's likely to get the backing of the GMB union next Tuesday, which will just in and of itself make her feel like more of a heavyweight. George, I'm going to ask you, which of these candidates for the Labour leadership do you think might worry the Tory party, if any of them? And how's this being seen amongst the other players in Westminster? Well, I think it's certainly... I mean, early stages, but even so. Well, exactly. I think it's certainly safe to say that the Tory candidate for the Labour leadership will be Rebecca Long-Bailey. I think they regard her as continuity Corbyn with a zero personality and someone that Boris Johnson could easily beat at an election. I think the person they're most scared of at this point is Keir Starmer notwithstanding the fact he's white, male, middle class and all the rest of it and from North London, I think they see him as the most oven ready to coin a Boris Johnson phrase, Prime Minister, someone who you could imagine walking over the step of number 10. And as I think I've said before, I think when Boris Johnson's premiership goes wrong, it will go wrong in a fairly spectacular, chaotic way and people might be looking for a reassuring face. And I think that's why Keir Starmer appears to be the front runner. But I agree with Jim that it's early days and I think if I was the Tories watching this campaign unfolding, I would be keeping a close eye, as Jim just said, on Lisa Nandy because... Her appearance on the Andrew Neil programme, which, of course, Boris Johnson famously ducked during the election campaign, it seemed to me she was incredibly poised, dealt with the questions very well and looked eminently statesmanlike. At disadvantages, the public don't really know her, but she's got five years to introduce herself. I suppose. Although I would add to that, I don't think Andrew Neil was at his most kind of Rottweiler server. I don't think he gave the full treatment that he gave to Jeremy Corbyn in December. Well, it's interesting that, isn't it? Because in a way that interview was emblematic of the rising interest in her as a candidate. And he was sort of fascinated, and we all are, as to whether she might come through the middle. Because talking about the extent to which Keir Starmer has been ahead, he managed to secure 89 nominations from the parliamentarians, which is way more than anybody else. Then, of course, Rebecca Long-Bailey seems to be ahead in this slightly odd ballot of Momentum, the grassroots organisation. Can you explain to us what went on there? Because they, oh, they didn't actually offer the Momentum members any other names, did <laughs> this they? This was absolutely priceless. It was beyond Kafkaesque, this idea that you have this group entirely about internal party democracy. It's all about taking power away from leaders and giving it to members. But instead of actually doing that, they just said to them, we, a handful of people at the top of Momentum, have concluded that Rebecca Long-Bailey just happens to be the best candidate along with Angela Rayner for deputy, and we're going to let you say yes or no. And I suppose to their credit, 30% of the membership said, well, no, to Long-Bailey, and about 48% said no to Rayner, but that was not enough to stop them just going ahead and doing it. And a tiny turnout as well, unless their membership numbers are not what they claim. 7,000 people out of a membership that were told is 40,000. But could it be a problem for Keir Starmer going forward that he is so popular amongst his fellow parliamentarians? I suppose that's another question. Is it how left-wing will the membership actually turn out to be when it comes to the vote? I don't think it's a negative for him that he has lots of MPs, but I also don't think that in the ultimate analysis that it was necessarily a big plus. So it gives you the sense of momentum, just as him having the endorsement from Unison gives him this momentum. But I think fundamentally, it feels a lot like this is all about Labour membership of more than a half a million people looking at probably a hard left candidate, which is Long Bailey, versus a soft left candidate, which could be Keir or Lisa, and making this decision of do they want to tone down the radicalism because they're sick of being out of power for nine years and losing four elections? Or are they just going to double down and tell each other that actually they weren't radical enough and it's all the fault of the beastly media, etc.? George, 
talking to Labour MPs, there's a real range of emotions at the moment about this leadership contest. There are those who think, OK, we really have a chance to rescue our party, make it viable again. And there are quite a few who also, I don't know if Jim would agree with me, there are some who slightly shrug in despair because they think it will take such a long time to reunite all those different wings of the party that have been at war and become a viable government in waiting again. Yes, I think that's true. And if you listen to people around Tony Blair, they think the only way you can rebuild the party is basically to go to war with it first, take on the left, drive the left out. The left isn't interested in sharing power. The only salvation for Labour is a full-scale civil war led by someone like Jess Phillips, who we haven't really talked about. But frankly, that would put the Labour Party out of power for a decade, and who knows what would be left standing amid the rubble after that kind of contest. On the other hand, Keir Starmer, it seems to me, is the person who, if you look at the very slick launch video he put out, and the way he edged the party towards the Remain position on Brexit as well, which you might disagree was the wrong place for them to end up, but nevertheless, you had to admire the skill with which he manoeuvred the debate in his direction. He just seems to me someone who could bring the party back to a more moderate mainstream position, and even though there's a mountain to climb, obviously, after the result on December the 12th, put them back in a position. I mean, at the moment, we can't conceive of the Labour Party being in a position where it could win the election in five years' time. But five years is an epic time in British politics. And we know the electorate's volatile. And who knows what the Tory party is going to look like at the end of four years of Boris Johnson's premiership. And the two big issues which damaged Labour so badly in December will have both disappeared, which is Brexit and Jeremy Corbyn. I think when people talk about um, both Lisa Nandy and Keir Starmer, they use Kinnock-esque. That's what they're thinking of. Like It's the bridgehead back from massive civil war with militant left and back into a centrist position. But that took a long time, right? It took ages. And I went to see this speech by Tony Blair in the aftermath of the general election. And what was fascinating is that he was doing what you'd expect Tony Blair to do, which is to say, I told you so, and we can only win from the centre. But when he was asked, what is the vision? What is it that you think can enthuse voters? Tony Blair didn't really have much to say other than some kind of vague waffle about IT. They have a sort of identity crisis, all of them. And we haven't even mentioned Scotland where they used to have more than 40 seats and now they have one. And the maths, which would be really difficult, even without a Scotland, is just horrendous when you take that into account. I'm really glad you brought that up, Jim, because I wanted to ask you about this because already, even in these early stages of the campaigns, Lisa Nandy and Jess Phillips have both been very strong on the union and... Ian Murray, who's standing for deputy leader, who is the only surviving Labour MP in the whole of Scotland now, has also said, you know, never again can we face both ways on these existential matters. But actually under Corbyn and Macdonald, they were really seemed quite relaxed about not just the demise of the Labour Party in Scotland, but even about Scotland leaving the union. Is this also a moment to fight over Labour's position on that? core issue. And also Rebecca Long-Bailey has made quite relaxed sounds about the idea of having a second referendum on Scottish independence. So she's following the line of Corbyn there. It's EU referendum all over again, isn't it? In that Labour is trying to appeal to both sides or has been trying to appeal to both sides and trying to kind of fudge it and therefore they lose out. And the problem with Scotland, as a lot of listeners will already be aware, is that on the one side, the kind of unionist vote, you have to share it with the Lib Dems and with the Tories. And if you go the other way of, well, we can allow some nationalist sentiment, we're relaxed about the second referendum. The SNP own that brand. that You're not going to get much love from saying, well, yeah, maybe we'll just sort of let you go ahead with it, but we're not really that nationalistic at all. There's not that many votes to be gained from that. I was looking at some cephalogical analysis and it seems that people voting for independence in the 2014 referendum in Scotland has just siphoned a lot of them straight into voting SNP and they've lost their allegiance to the Labour brand. Yeah, and when we look back at Tony Blair and the many 
elections he won and the many good things he did do in government, leaving aside that some of the less good things like the Iraq war. Is he the architect of Labour's disastrous situation in Scotland in that if we hadn't had the setting up of Holyrood and the Scottish devolution, would the SNP have become so professionalised? Mm. I think there is a case to be made that Blair has actually damaged the Labour Party massively by allowing that to happen a generation ago. George, is that fair? I mean, it was actually 2015 under Ed Miliband that the Labour vote totally collapsed in Scotland. But it's ironic, of course, because the whole devolution settlement was supposed to address the rise of the SNP. It wasn't just independence. There were profound forces at play in Scotland by 2014 that we're now seeing playing out in Northern England. It's basically the nationalist issue confused things in Scotland, but it was the same kind of process of people turning their back on the Labour Party, going for more nationalist branding. And you can see that spreading. I mean, actually, just very briefly, the one thing that I'm very surprised about is the way that South Wales, look at the map of the electoral map of Britain now. South Wales is the one redoubt of working class former industrial area that's still massively pro-Labour. And you can see what happened in Scotland then in the north of England, Wales could be next unless Labour's very careful. Interestingly, Welsh Labour took a somewhat different path to Corbyn. And certainly in the 17 election, I remember Carwyn Jones made it all about Welsh Labour, never talked about Corbyn at all. I'm Miranda Green and that was the FT's Politics Podcast. Sebastian is away for a couple of weeks, but this week you've been listening to George Parker, Jim Picard, Sam Fleming and myself. And next week we'll be back to discuss more on the world of Westminster and UK politics. Thank you to all my guests and to producers Anna Dedder and Jack Denton. Thank you for listening. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up Quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's Quince.com slash upgrade. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.